Psalm 5. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgression. Count them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Every word of God is perfect. Let his people bless his holy name. Amen. Have you ever been in pitch black darkness? Somewhere that doesn't even have a hint of light. I was once on a caving trip. And, and in a way, that was just the kind of environment where I really learned something about the light. It's unsettling how complete the darkness can be. And so when even the smallest pinprick of light breaks through, it stands out in sharp contrast. In Psalm 5, David is approaching God in prayer. And as he draws near to God and sees God more clearly, things that are in contrast to God stand out clearly as well. The, the psalm has five stanzas. Those are the paragraphs in the layout in your Bible. After the introductory appeal, two of those are about righteousness. That's just what you would expect to see with David having his focused fixed on God. But the other two, stanzas two and four, are about wickedness. As David sees more of God in his holiness, he also sees wickedness more clearly than ever before. When prayer brings us closer to God, this will happen. One teacher writes that Psalm 5 illustrates the polarity and the tension that characterize the life of prayer. On the one side, there is God, and on the other, evil human beings. And as we pray, and as David prays, the thought of the psalmist alternates between those two poles. Psalm 5 is a great example of a way we can approach God in prayer. It's a model of Prayer And scripture, scripture gives us many such models. But here it also gives us something else. It gives us David, a model prayer. 
How he prays is an example for us, but so is he, the one who prays. He's an example of how through prayer, anyone can approach God in any circumstances of life and be changed. Let's start with the approach. First, our approach to prayer should be regular. Verse 3 indicates that this is another morning prayer. And the next psalm, Psalm 6, will be an evening prayer. These two bracket the day just as did Psalm 3 and 4. Reading my commentaries this week, I should not have been surprised, but I was, at the collective enthusiasm for morning prayer. It's always convicting to me to read these godly men and their perspective on morning prayer. From Calvin to Spurgeon to Jim Boyce, everyone agreed the morning is the fittest time for conversation with God. One man even said an hour in the morning is worth two in the evening. All of them suggested that we structure our days around meeting with God in the morning and waiting and watching expectantly to see him act throughout the day. But David woke up this Psalm 5 morning with a lot on his mind. It says at the beginning that he had words, but also groans and sighs. And we see from the run of Psalms that for him, prayer is the key of the day and the lock of the night. He's going to be persistent in prayer no matter what's happening. Second, David's approach to prayer is also thoughtful. He doesn't rush to get to his needs. He begins with the God to whom he's praying. He says, my king and my God. His prayer is filled with reflections on God's character, his holiness, love, justice, and kindness. Look closely at this psalm. It's eight verses before David gets to his first petition. While his need is the reason for his prayer, it's not the subject of it. And counterintuitively, that thoughtful approach is why David is also able to pray expectantly. Look at how verse 3 ends. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. He approaches and comes away from prayer expecting that God will act. And he has hope because he's presented his requests by faith to the God who can actually do something about them. He has hope and expectancy because the outcome that he desires is not some specific event that he thinks he can force God's hand to make happen. It's the knowledge that whatever God does will be for his good. Prayer isn't David just going through the motions. He approaches God seriously and thoughtfully. And as a result, he met with God and is now at peace waiting on him. I like this description. David's prayer is prayer that is not the flashes of a hot and hasty brain, but the steady burning of a well-kindled fire. We could also add humble to the list. David does not presume access to God because he's David, because he's king, or because of his stature. He presumes access to God only because of God's covenant 
faithfulness. But none of that is what really stands out to me about David's approach. Those are all good and necessary for prayer. But what really stands out to me about David is that prayer is so personal. David has a deeply personal relationship with God. One teacher quipped, if you know God, if you actually know him, you can come to him without putting on your makeup. David is coming to God without dressing up for the occasion. He's praying with all that he has, with words and groans and cries. And he can only do this because he knows God and he knows that God knows him. He uses the Lord's personal covenantal name in verses one and three. And in verse two, he says, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. Kids, sometimes when people are first learning to pray, even as adults, they think there's a special language or certain words you have to learn to use so that God will hear you. And yes, scriptural words and theological truths can help us in our prayers. But that's not first what God is looking for. He's looking for people who know him, who love him, and who want to know him more. One commentator used the example of earthly dads. When a father is doing it right, his children are comfortable talking to him. They're respectful, but they're also completely comfortable that their father loves and understands. Dad, that's a place we need to be or to get with our children. They should be confident that they can talk to us and that even when we need to tell them something they don't want to hear, we will do so with unwavering love. David approaches his heavenly father just that way. He knows that God will hear him and that God will do what is good. He finishes his prayer more hopeful than he began because in prayer he encountered and reflected upon the unshakable character of God. The goodness of a father that he knows well. Having seen David's approach to prayer in the first stanza, I think stanzas two and three show the effect that that kind of prayer has on the one who prays it. What does prayer do to David? What effect does David's prayer have on David is a question with important answers. The first should be rather obvious just by the nature of prayer. It allows him to unburden. We start to learn in verses four through six that David is dealing with enemies who are speaking cruelly and lying about him to others. And while he prays in verse 8 for the wisdom of God to guide him through the challenge, and he prays in verse 10 for God to judge them in their wickedness, the prayer is, on the whole, rather light on petitions. David spends far more energy and words preparing for his petitions and reflecting on the God to whom they're brought. Of course he wants answers. Of course he wants relief. 
But more than that, he wants to lay these burdens down before God. He wants to rid himself of the mental and emotional weight of carrying them around himself. True prayer is the great unburdening. Because David's focus in prayer is broader than just the circumstances in front of him. The prayer has the effect of relieving him of the heavy load those circumstances would otherwise require. Oh, he feels them, absolutely. Remember, he says he brings God his groans and his cries. He feels them. But he leaves carrying less weight than he brought in. Prayer unburdens. Many church history books tell the story of Martin Luther on his way to Augsburg to appear before the Roman Catholic cardinal who had accused him of heresy. Frederick III, the elector of Saxony, had been protecting Luther up to that point. But on the journey, one of the cardinal's servants taunted Luther and asked him, where will you find shelter if the elector should desert you? And Luther gave his famous answer, under the shelter of heaven. That's where. In all of life's storms, is the shelter of heaven enough for you? You can find it in prayer. It was for David. Because the more he prays, the more he's driven into the refuge of God. The attacks of his enemies, verse 8, what effect do they have? They move him toward God. The start of a new day, verse 3, what effect does it have? It moves him toward God. The faithfulness of God, verse 7, drives David to worship. The protection of God, verse 10, drives David to sing for joy. Prayer unburdens because rightly it points our eyes up toward God rather than down toward our trouble. Now, prayer doesn't cloud all trouble. In fact, prayer gives David a better understanding of the greatest trouble in his life. Sin. Seeing God more clearly, any deviation from that perfect righteousness stands out in stark contrast. And that could be risky because greater awareness of sin can make our burden heavier than it ever was before. Our normal tendency, though, is not that. Our normal tendency is to take sin too lightly. If you don't agree with me, then ask yourself why you continue to sin so much. David sees first the sin of his persecutors and enemies. That's what we all see first, isn't it? And notice in verses 4 through 6 that the more he thinks about their sin, the more intense the language becomes. Verse 4, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. You see David's descriptions of sin become more intense and specific the longer he thinks about it. David started with God does not delight in. But by the end of the stanza, it's you destroy. The truth about God 
my king and my God, lead me in your righteousness. The truth about God provoked in David greater awareness of sin. As David approaches God in his holiness, he's keenly aware of the unrighteousness that surrounds him. God in verse 4 does not delight in wickedness. Can we say the same of the world around us? Of course not. Wickedness is the central theme of much of today's humor. The world delights in wickedness. Wickedness is portrayed as attractive and entertaining. When we say God does not delight in wickedness, can we say the same for ourselves? David also says evil may not dwell with you. That word dwell means visit or sojourn. When I used to backpack, uh, starting in early afternoon, you'd begin to evaluate every potential campsite as you went by. You wanted to determine whether or not this is the good spot to stop and to stay for the night. In this image, God evaluates every situation. And if there is any evil, he does not dwell there. The language gets even stronger with verse fives. You hate all evildoers. That's a rather far cry from God loves the sinner but hates the sin, isn't it? Now the statements are talking about two very different things. The word evildoer here is a grammatical participle describing someone for whom evil is a way of life. You cannot be in Christ and be an evildoer as a way of life. God does hate every sinner who is not reconciled to him in Christ. He has to, or his holiness is a fraud. And it's because this is true that the gospel is so glorious that God hates evil and evildoers is why our salvation is so unexpectedly miraculous. It's why we should pursue righteousness so excitedly once we belong to him. Another pastor suggests a helpful analogy. If you love your daughter, you will be furious at someone who abuses her. If you are not angry and you allow her to go on being hurt, she will look at you and say, you don't love me. God hates sin precisely because he is a loving God. Because God infinitely loves everything good, he infinitely hates everything that harms what is good. This includes the bloodthirstiness in verse 6, which I assume we all agree is evil. And it also includes those who speak lies and deceitful men in verse 6 that we might not think is such a big deal. Why God hates lying so much is a sermon for another day. It's a genuinely interesting study. But suffice it to say, there's definitely something to the fact that lying and murder are David's shorthand for all wickedness. It's the same reason why Isaiah, seeing God's glory on the throne, summarized his own wicked condition with, I am a man of unclean lips. It's why when we concluded our Revelation reading a couple of weeks ago, and there was the final list in Revelation 22 of those who would not inherit the kingdom, John identified the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters. 
and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. David is shorthanding the sinful condition of unbelievers in this case. When the Apostle Paul goes into greater detail on that subject in Romans 9, he pulls from this very psalm among several others. These evildoers are the object of David's petition. When he gets around to asking God for something finally, he asks God to judge the wicked for their sin. Sin matters. But here, too, David is a model prayer. Because isn't it easy when thinking about the sins of others, when asking God to deal with them, for the praying one to become self-righteous? Christians are often accused of thinking that they're better than everyone else because, in part, we point out sin when we see it. That self-righteousness isn't what happens with David in prayer, is it? If David were thinking self-righteously, the corresponding verse to evil may not dwell with you would go something like, but I can through the abundance of my own good works. That's why I enter your house. But what does verse 7 actually say? But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. David sees others' sin, and David sees his own. He fears the Lord in his holiness, knowing that in his own righteousness, he would have no place in God's presence. And though David wants God's wisdom, and he asks God to lead him in righteousness, his plea for acceptance is not in those things but only God's mercy and covenant faithfulness. David had lied many times. Several of them are recorded in Scripture. David was responsible for murder. But David knows that he is not counted among the wicked, even though his life has at times been far from God's holiness. Now, David wants to follow God. And love what God loves. But even that is not enough. And so David prays knowing that it's only by God's loving kindness that he or any of us may enter God's house. This is the great tension of the Christian life. Loving and desiring our own obedience without ever relying upon it. We cannot walk with God while demanding life on our own terms and living only the way we want. You cannot serve two masters, and a life that has been redeemed from death will serve the one who conquered death with all the heart, mind, soul, and strength. Even so, there is a way to fall off the other side of that horse. Do you know that the gospel is just as rejected in works righteousness as it is in unrighteousness? We think that our obedience is so great that we no longer need God's mercy, and we've rejected the gospel. We insist on depending only on ourselves so that we never have to depend on him. 
and we've rejected the gospel. Another pastor put it well. He said, sin will keep you out of God's presence, but obedience will not get you in. The only way for a sinner to come before God is through his loving kindness. That's what David lays hold of here. God's loving kindness. And David lays hold of the right balance. He knows sin in others and in himself. And he knows that God hates sin. He longs to pursue the righteousness of God. He asks God for the wisdom and the strength to follow God even in these trials. In his imprecatory prayer, asking God to judge the wicked, his heart is still the appropriate, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Why should they bear their guilt? Verse 10, for they have rebelled against you. What happens when a model prayer prays? Though his day started with the groans and cries appropriate to his circumstances, that's not where David ends up, is it? Verse 11, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. A day with challenging circumstances led to a day of joyful worship. And we have no indication that the circumstances changed whatsoever. What changed is David, the prayer. One pastor wrote, joy is the privilege of the believer. The holy bliss of ours has a firm foundation for we are joyful in God. We love God and therefore we delight in him. Prayer brings David to a place of joy and worship. The closer we draw to God, especially in the most difficult circumstances, the more we can see things as he sees them. And that is our shelter and our relief. David woke up this morning seeing life through the eyes of his trials. And that's an easy thing to do. It's why so many are discouraged. But in prayer, David began to see things as they really are. It began with seeing God for who he is. And then that act, because you see God for who he is, of, of unburdening himself before the Lord, where you can just lay it down. It included seeing sin all around him, but also in himself. And then praying, as another wrote, not only for protection from wicked persons, but also for protection from becoming like them. When you pray in the midst of trials, are you more concerned about the trials or that you would be free from sin in the trials? David strikes a great balance here. And from that posture, he's able not just to see, but to actually experience anew 
God's loving kindness. As he thinks about his own sin, he reflects upon the experience of the forgiveness of God. David is embracing the gospel in a daily way as a means of setting his perspective, wisdom, strength, and even joy. There are a lot of good model prayers in Scripture. And we know that God is also satisfied with the clumsy and inarticulate groans of a person who loves and trusts him. But in this morning's passage, we've also encountered a model prayer. Someone who's able and willing to come before God with the burdens of the day, before the day even begins. And to lay them down in trusting his day and his life in the hands of a God whose loving kindness knows no ends. David, the man after God's own heart. And I would suggest that after reading Psalm 5, you can see the path to how he got there. Trust God. Pray. And see, and that's how we'll get there too.